continue on in uh, the story of Gideon. And as I mentioned last week, uh, his story encompasses more space than any other single leader uh, that's listed in Judges. And we saw the beginning of his story and how he had to overcome uh, particular hurdles, his issues. He had to overcome his circumstances, his culture, and his concerns as God made him into uh, that biblical hero. Well, as we embark on the second half of his story, uh, we're going to get to experience the victories and failures of Gideon because what we see is, is quite the story of uh, conquest. He's one of the probably more told stories uh, in Sunday schools about how he defeats the Midianites, but he also uh, fails in a, in a mighty way at the end. Uh, but through his whole story, what we get from Gideon as we look at this, the one feature to kind of stand out is a man that gets godly courage. Uh, he moves forward in his life with a confidence that clearly is not his own. We know that because we watch him at the beginning of his story and we see him at the end. Uh, the cowardly lion becomes the fierce and unrelenting warrior for the Lord. What God had predicted at the beginning when he said, you're a valiant warrior, and we watch Gideon in the first half of his story do nothing that seems valiant at all. He's constantly questioning and, and struggling and working through some things. But what we see in the second half is him move from coward to valiant warrior. What God had said he would be, uh, he becomes. And he becomes the judge of godly courage. And we watch God use him to overcome unfathomable odds and bring glory to God's name. Now, where we ended the story was at, I call the fleecing. Uh, another one that we know so much about, it's told so many times that we, we build it up as a positive experience in our minds, but it, it's not. It's, it's Gideon's last uh, attempt to, to get God to change his mind. And so after we finish the fleecing uh, test by Gideon, as they're preparing to enter into battle, we watch God intervene to prevent pride and doubt. And, and Theron read the first eight verses here as we dove in. And those eight verses dealt uh, with the idea of pride, right? It, we have 32,000 soldiers and God says, you're going to think that you won the battle. And so he's going to slim the force down. What does he do? He takes out all that are fearful, uh, which was a, a law actually in Israel that no one was to go to battle in fear. Uh, that's I think in Deuteronomy, they talk about that because you don't want someone scaring everyone. And so over two-thirds leaf, so you have a very fearful force here. And then God wants to break this down even further, and that's how we get to the 300 and how they drink water. I'm going to pick up the reading in verse 9 as we look at how God prevents uh, both pride and doubt. And it came to pass, it says in verse 9, the same night, so after this test is done, we're closing out, that the Lord said unto him, Arise, get thee down unto the host, for I have delivered it into thine hand. And what God is saying there is, go do the job I just told you to do. Got 300, go take care of it. But our God, who is sovereign and all-knowing, he knows who Gideon is. He says, but if thou fear to go down, go thou with Purah, thou servant, down to the host. And thou shalt hear what they say. And afterwards shall thine hands be strengthened to go down unto the host. Then when he down with Purah, his servant, 
unto the outside of the armed men that were in the host. In other words, right up to where the guards would be. And the Midianites and the Amalekites and all the children of the east lay along in the valley like grasshoppers for multitude, and their camels were without number as the sand by the seaside for multitude. And what he's saying is he said, go down there and look at the enemy and all your fear is going to go away. And the first thing that Gideon and we're noting, and don't miss this, when we go with human vision to look at it, there's more people than you can count. There's more camels than can be counted. Remember, they use camel in war probably in the first time in history in a very effective way. So this was the feared weapon that was there. And so Gideon walks down and what does he see? More people than grasshoppers, more camels than can be counted. And it goes on. uh, And when Gideon was come, behold, there was a man that told a dream unto his fellow and said, behold, I dreamed a dream and lo, a cake of barley bread tumbled into the host of Midian and came unto a tent and smote it that it fell and it overturned it that the tent lay along. And his fellow answered and said, this is nothing else save the sword of Gideon, the son of Joash, a man of Israel, for into his hand hath God delivered Midian and all the host. And it was so when Gideon heard the telling of the dream and the interpretation thereof that he worshiped. And don't miss that. Uh, If you highlight in your Bible, note that When he heard how God would deliver, his response was worship. And we'll talk more about that. And then he returned unto the host of Israel, his host being 300 people, and said, Arise, for the Lord hath delivered into your hand the host of Midian. And he divided the 300 men into three companies, and he put a trumpet in every man's hand with empty pitchers and lamps within the pitchers. And he said unto them, Look on me and do likewise. And behold, when I come to the outside of the camp, it shall be that as I do so shall ye do. When I blow with the trumpet and all that are with me, then blow ye the trumpet also on every side of all the camp and say the sword of the Lord and of Gideon. And I want us to see something as we dive into the story and work through it. One is understanding the delicate balance between elevating oneself, self-pride, and playing the victim, self-defeat. We seem to swing quickly from one bad option to the other. And when I say bad, I mean sinful. We move from pride to defeat, both of which are sinful options. God, again, in his infinite wisdom, mercy, and grace, guides Gideon and Israel through this delicate minefield. What we're staring at as this beginning part of the story is the potential to be arrogant and the potential to demean God and his power, the self-defeat. And I put here as, as the first thought, God makes it obviously impossible without his involvement. That's a gift that he gives them. Don't miss in the verses, when Theron was reading, God through the whole thing said, if you have this many people, you're going to take credit for what I'm going to do. And I want to make sure you understand this. This was always impossible without God. Seven years, they've been oppressed by Midian. They have 32,000, and God is, is going to have them go against 135,000. They have minimal weapons. They have weapons, quote-unquote, galore. They don't have the camels. They do have the camels. In other words, it was always impossible without God. What God is doing for Israel is removing any doubt they would have in their mind about the fact that they could not conquer alone. And here how he works the odds. It went from four to one to 13 to one. If you're afraid, go ahead and leave. So you start off, you're behind. You're thinking four to one. Maybe we get lucky. 
Then it's 13 to 1, and then God says, not enough. Now it's 450 to 1. And I want you to get a grip of the magnitude of who Midian is and now the nothingness of Israel. First, we lose the fearful, then the careless, and end up with only 300. Now, there's so many confusing pictures that are out there to understand how people were lapping up. God was looking for those who were going to be focused on the task at hand. So they were brought to drink. The ones that got on their knees and put their face in the creek, so to speak, and drank that way could not have their eyes up to see what's going on. The ones that lap like a dog, and as a kid, I always thought, dogs put their face in the bowl. So I am confused by which one this is, but a dog laps standing up. And so the guys that were standing up, they would reach down, they would scoop up water, and then they would drink it out of their hands. In other words, their eyes are always up. They are careful. They are not getting caught up in their need, but instead seeing the task at hand. And so I'm sure Gideon was just thinking, man, I wish he'd picked the, the 9,700, but he picked the 300. And so we've removed fearful, we've removed the careless, and now we're down to 300. I put as a note here, God could have had Gideon narrow the field himself. He could have said, hey, you got to get rid of everyone but 300. I do want you to see God's hand again in narrowing the field where he doesn't get blamed for narrowing the field. If you'll notice in the story as we go along, the Ephraimites are going to complain about not being invited to the battle, but the people from Asher, Naphtali, and Manasseh do not complain because God had narrowed the field. So he frees up Gideon from making the choice in the selection. And then I put here, God makes it obviously clear he is involved. I'm going to reread 9 through 11. It goes, and it came to pass the same night that the Lord said unto him, Arise, get thee down unto the host, for I have delivered it into thine hand. But if thou fear to go down, which we know he's going to, go thou with Perua thy servant down to the host, and thou shalt hear what they say, and afterwards shall thine hands be strengthened to go down unto the host. And I want you to not miss the miracle of what took place that night. I'm going to walk us through. Gideon with his servant goes to the correct side of camp. He ends up near two specific people on that side of camp. He gets close enough, mind you, to a warlike people who are on guard. Those people are stationed where they're at so that there's no intruder that no one gets close. They are trained for this. They are a nomadic people that are constantly moving. So in other words, he's just going to eavesdrop on professional guards. And I don't want you to miss the miracle. He goes to the right place. He bumps into the right people who don't recognize that he and the servant are there, even though they're trained to recognize that. And then at the perfect time, and don't miss the timing that God does, he walks up as a man is sharing his dream about a barley loaf. And then a buddy is giving the interpretation, which includes Gideon's own name. And then don't miss this. These are two pagans that God is using to reassure Gideon. Now, I'm not a big fan of people telling me their dreams. Anyway, in my family, I always tell my kids, they say, I had a dream. I'm like, yeah, I don't, I don't want to know. Unless it's about your dream for the future, which is more of a vision, I don't care what happened. And that's why. Look what happens when you share your dreams. You end up being defeated uh, by the Israelites. But all that to say, here it is, is, here is this guy dreaming about a barley loaf, and it rolls down a hill, and his buddy immediately says, that's Gideon. This is this guy we're hearing about in Israel. This is the guy that got 32,000 troops rounded up. Now, he's just weeded them down. 
But they're, they're thinking about it. A barley loaf was for poor people, which would have depicted Israel in their mind. And there it is. They leave raising, by the way, zero alarm. They go close to professional guards. They walk away from professional guards. They make no alarm. And then they have a plan they go back to. He goes down in fear. Don't forget why he went down. If you're afraid, go down and listen. He's in fear and he comes back to the 300 and he already has a plan. Who sends the plan? Well, it's obvious that the plan comes from God. And it's a plan to defeat Midian, which is really how do we catalyze Midian to defeat themselves? Because that's what takes place. Midian destroys them. And what does Gideon do? And, and, and I mentioned this when we we're reading it. How does he respond? He worships. And it was so when Gideon heard the telling of the dream and the interpretation thereof that he worshiped. The rest of that verse, as you continue on, is he gets back to the host. In other words, as he hears that dream, he is immediately worshiping God. He's giving glory to God for what's there. I come back to how I started this section. There's a delicate balance between self-pride and self-defeat. It's a balance that as believers we need to be aware of and defend against because we tend to find a way to claim and even believe we deserve the credit. I was reading in a book, uh, I looked at a list of books, you know, men should read, and I, I bought this book on the, the laws of power. And one of the laws literally says, have people do things and take credit for it. And that's how the world sees power, right? To steal the glory. We like to steal from God the glory he only deserves. And so as Israel is walking into a situation that for seven years they've done nothing about, God knows that with 32,000 soldiers and even 10,000 soldiers, they would try to steal the glory. He's going to give victory, and they're going to take the credit for it. There's the self-pride. And then so often the coin flips, and we tend to wallow in self-defeat. There's Gideon, right? Oh, let me put a fleece out. Oh, if you're afraid, go down and listen to them. Again, God is helping Gideon grow. He's moving Gideon along. Gideon shouldn't have needed to hear the dream. He should have just trusted that God would do what God had promised to do. God works through these two men to give him the assurance that he needs, but it's not the bravery of Gideon in going down there. It is actually the coward in Gideon that goes down to the host. It's the distrust, and that's what self-defeat is. The coin flips, and we tend to wallow in self-defeat. What are we doing? Limiting God and spurning his character, seeing him as somehow weak, or unwilling. And I, I put a note here, pride and doubt work together in a weird yet dangerous way. And here's the question for us as we're marching with Gideon into this battle, are we addressing our self-pride? Are we actively seeing God's hand and giving him alone the glory? God knew Israel. They would claim what belonged only to him. And then he also knew Gideon, who's going to wrestle with this idea of self-defeat. When we find ourselves struggling in self-defeat, do we fix our eyes on who God is and what he has accomplished and what he will accomplish? You see, both of these soul-crushing attitudes are solved by seeing God for who he is and what he has done. And instead of self-pride or self-defeat, we're supposed to find ourselves in a disposition of worship, even right on the spot. 
See, we tend to express our pride whenever we can, right? It, it springs up in us. Pride just rears its ugly head, right? We'll say that. My pride warred up. My anger filled out, right? I'm consumed with self. And if we're wallowing in self-defeat, well, if you bump in somebody that's wallowing in self-defeat, that's what you're going to hear about. You know what should well up in us, though? It's what Gideon did, and that's worship. We're supposed to spontaneously be able to worship our Lord. And, and I want to remind you, you might say, well, it's, it's hard to worship in certain, certain situations. I don't think any situation was as delicate as being next to guards that are there to destroy you. He worshiped on the spot. He, he, he took time to give honor and glory to God, to lift him up, to praise him. He worshiped spontaneously. And I put here, Gideon wasted no time before adoring his Lord. He knew and believed that God was carrying them and they were acting in his will. And so now we watch the story unfold and we see quickly and decisively how God provides victory and wisdom. We continue on in, in chapter 7, verse 19, and I'm going to read through 822. So this is quite a, a journey through scripture and I'll comment a little bit as I read uh, to help us frame the story out. It says, So Gideon and the hundred men that were with him came unto the outside of the camp in the beginning of the middle watch. And the middle watch, depending on who you're reading, is either 10 p.m. or 12. I think it's more probably 10 p.m. based on how they did their watches at that time. And they had but newly set the watch. And you can see God's timing here. So think about this. There's multiple watches in the night and they're swapping. And so there's activity in the camp. There's conversation. There's movement. There's people walking by tents and there's people moving out to go set the watch. The timing is to hit them where you have at least two sets of guards awake at that time. And it goes in and they blew the trumpets and break the pitchers that were there in their hands. And in the three companies blew the trumpets and break the pitchers and held the lamps in their heft hands and the trumpets in their right hands to blow withal. And they cried the sword of the Lord and of Gideon. And they stood every man in his place. Just so you know, they did not enter camp they did not draw their swords. They did not march down the hill. Their job was to blow a trumpet, break a pitcher, hold the light, scream. This is their job. For the Lord and for Gideon, and we're show, showing the light, they stood in their place. They're not moving. They stood round about the camp, and all the host ran and cried and fled. And the 300 blew the trumpet, and the Lord set every man's sword against his fellow. And understand, confusion can have you killing your comrades in arm. You can make a mistake in a moment. I don't want you to miss the magnitude of what takes place. This is no mistake. This is not natural what ends up unfolding. Because it's one thing for a couple guys to kill each other because they got scared. It's quite another for what takes place, and that's 120,000 people that slaughter each other. Uh, and they're all comrades in arms. And so the Lord set every man's sword against his fellow, even throughout all the host. And the host fled to Bethshittah in Sererath and to the border of Abel Meholah unto Tabath. And the men of Israel gathered themselves together out of Naphtali and out of Asher and out of all Manasseh and pursued after the Midianites. And, and you're why is there such a ready group of people? Well, this is, the, this is most likely the lost troops that are now prepared to dive in and now pursue the host that is fleeing. Then Gideon, it says, And Gideon sent messengers throughout all Mount Ephraim, saying, Come down against the Midianites and take before them the waters 
unto Beth Barah and Jordan. So in other words, can you come help us not let them cross the Jordan? Then all the men of Ephraim gathered themselves together and took the waters unto Beth Barah and Jordan. And they took two princes of the Midianites, Oreb and Zeb. And they slew Oreb upon the rock Oreb. And by the way, no one knows where this rock is because they named it for what took place on it, which was killing this guy. And Zeb they slew at the winepress of Zeb. They've renamed these locations and pursued Midian and brought the heads of Oreb and Zeb to Gideon on the other side of Jordan. So they were catching people crossing over, and then they're over on the east side of the Jordan where Gideon is running. And the men of Ephraim said unto him, Why hast thou served us thus, that thou called us not when thou wentest to fight with the Midianites. And they did chide with him sharply. Uh, they were furious. They were worked up. They were ready to fight Gideon because he hadn't asked him. And the Ephraimites are hotheads. They're, they're very proud. Uh, Joshua came from their tribe. We're going to see them do this again with Jephthah. Uh, Jephthah takes a whole other course of action and kills a whole bunch of them. Uh, we're going to see Gideon do something different. And he said unto them, What have I done now in comparison of you? Is not the gleaning of the grapes of Ephraim better than the vintage of Abizar? In other words, isn't your grapes better than all the wine we could ever make in my hometown? God hath delivered into your hands the princes of Midian, Oreb and Zeb. And what was I able to do in comparison of you? Then their anger was abated toward him when he had said that. Now I'm going to move through chapter 8. And just watch what takes place, and then we'll, we'll dialogue a little bit through it. And Gideon came to Jordan and passed over. And I want you to realize Ephraim has wasted time. He's pursuing a host. They're whining about something petty. He deals with them, and now he's crossing the Jordan. But notice who he passes over with. He and the 300 men that were with him, faint, yet pursuing them. He's pursuing 15,000 troops with 300 he hasn't moved from what God said should engage this group. And they're exhausted. They've worked all through the night. And he said, he gets to a town. He said unto the men of Succoth, Give, I pray you, loaves of bread unto the people that follow me, for they be faint. And I am pursuing after Zebah and Zalmunna, kings of Midian. By the way, Succoth is in Gad. These are Israelites. These are Gadites. They are supposed to be helping we're going to watch how they respond. And the princes of Succoth said, Are the hands of Zebah and Zamuna now in thine hand, that we should give bread unto thine army? And Gideon said, Therefore, when the Lord hath delivered Zebah and Zamuna into mine hand, then I will tear your flesh with the thorns of the wilderness and with briars. And he went up thence to Penuel and spake unto them likewise. And the men of Penuel answered him as the men of Succoth had answered him. And he spake also unto the men of Penuel, saying, When I come again in peace, I will break down this tower. In other words, your pride is in this tower. I'm going to demolish it. Your pride is in your leadership, Succoth. We're going to rip them to part with, with thorns uh, in the wilderness. And Gideon went up by the way of them that dwelt in tents on the east of Nabah and Jogbaha, and I'm just going through these names, you can pronounce them however you want, and smote the host, for the host was secure. And when Zebah and Zamuna fled, he pursued after them and took the two kings of Midian, Zebah and Zamuna, and discomfited all the hosts. In other words, he captured the two kings and pretty much slaughtered 15,000 soldiers, complete annihilation. And Gideon, the son of Joash, returned from battle before the sun was up, 
and caught a young man of the men of Succoth and inquired of him, and he described unto him the princes of Succoth. And actually his description was he wrote it down, which has fascinated linguists because here's a young man that obviously can write, and they're trying to figure out what he was writing and, and what, what kind of vocabulary, what kind of language, how was it written, because that was fascinates them. We see the advance of society long before archaeology would even point it out. And he, he writes it down, uh, and he described unto the princes of Succoth and the elders thereof, even three score and seventeen men, seventy-seven there. And he came unto the men of Succoth and said, Behold, Zabah and Zamuna, with whom you did abrade me, saying, Are the hands of Zabah and Zamuna now in thine hands, that we should give bread unto thy men that are weary? And so he did as he promised. He took the elders of the city and thorns of the wilderness and briars, and with them he taught the men of Succoth. And he beat down the tower of Penuel and slew the men of the city. And we'll talk about this. Why did he kill all the men? Uh, there's only speculation. Possibly they tried to stop him from breaking down the tower, and he killed him in the battle that ensued because he said, I'm going to break down. Basically, you put your pride in this tower, it's coming down. You put your pride in your leadership, they will be destroyed. And so he's doing what needed to be done to break a rebellious people, and we'll talk about that. Uh, going on, and he beat down and slew them in a city. Then said he unto Zebah and Zalmunna, What manner of men were they whom you slew at Tabor? And they answered, As thou art, so were they. Each one resembled the children of a king. And he said, They were my brethren, even the sons of my mother. As the Lord liveth, if you had saved them alive, I would not slay you. And he sent unto Jether his firstborn up and slay them. But the youth drew not his sword, for he feared because he was yet a youth. In other words, he said to his youngest or his oldest son, you kill these two men. It's, it's a difficult execution and it's hard to, to do. Uh, and he was too young to, to overcome that. So then Zebah and Zamuna said, rise thou and fall upon us. For as the man is, so is his strength. And Gideon arose and slew Zebah and Zamuna and took away the ornaments that were on their camel's necks. Then the men of Israel said unto Gideon, Rule thou over us, both thou and thy son and thy son's son also, for thou hast delivered us from the hand of Midian. And Gideon said unto them, I will not rule over you, neither shall my son rule over you. The Lord shall rule over you. And that's actually one of the, the boldest and best things. If he could have ended life there, that would have been perfect. He doesn't. But I want us to see in this the victory and wisdom of God. Here we watch the work of God unfold in a very miraculous and spectacular way. Midian and company self-destruct. Gideon handles internal controversy. Ephraim, Succoth, Penuel, God's way. He does it how God wants. He persists, by the way, for 150 miles in pursuit of the remaining enemy. And by the way, he kills those 15,000 in their home country, where they're from. He goes back to their doorstep and completes the job in front of them. He declines to be simply made the king of Israel. And I want us to see that God provides wisdom and victory in a very mighty way, because the story continues with the advancement of God's strategy, and it works perfectly. And I'll just kind of work our way back through this. We watch as God provides victory in a very miraculous way. 300 people blow a trumpet, break a jar, and scream, and the enemy kills themselves, 120,000 men. And I want that to sink in, because people get caught up in the story and they think, hey, that was a good strategy, but that it makes sense. If 
300 people attack 135,000 people. Will some of them kill or die in friendly fire? Sure. Some. Not 90%. And I want you to recognize that God worked in the psyche of the Midianites, the Amalekites, and the people from the east so that they kept on killing each other. That no one said, wait a second, we're all Midianites. We're neighbors. We've put our tent next to each other for years. No one, no one said that. They just destroyed each other in a self-slaughter and then started running. And I want you to recognize that the plan is God's, the positioning is God's, the work is God, is sovereign hand, but he is working in and through the psyche, the mind of the Midianites. He is in complete control. And then we see problems arise, right? First, the lost troops return. This is Naphtali, Asher, and Manassas, and there's no issue with them. They get called back in. It seems they come to, to the game without being called. They show up to help. There is no conflict. They feel no tension, right? They're the ones that were booted out of this, that God said, I'm not using you. But then comes Ephraim to help. And by the way, as I mentioned, it's a tribe that's going to cause trouble uh, throughout the book of Judges. They capture and kill two key princes of Midian, but then they get angry for not being part of the whole battle. They literally march to Gideon, wasting precious time for him in the pursuit of the remnant. So in the middle of what's taking place, destroy Midian, Ephraim says, hey, he slighted us. He didn't ask us to the battle. He didn't include us in this work. And I just put a pause there because how many times when we're doing God's work, we find a reason to be offended ourselves. Well, they didn't ask me to do this. That wasn't, I wasn't included in that. Pride, and I'm going to go with the word petty pride. Now, in the heat of the moment, Gideon could have been rash. He could have been uh, angry. He had a right to be. Yet what we find from him uh, God provides victory, but then God provides discernment. First, God helps Gideon uh, in dealing with the emotional Ephraimites. That's what I describe them as. They're just emotional. They're very, they're very delicate. Uh, they have big toes is what we would say. And he employs something that's interesting. If you go to Proverbs 15, 1, it says this, A soft answer turneth away wrath, but grievous words stir up anger. And what does Gideon do? He wisely appeases the anger of the Ephraimites with a soft answer. Uh, this does not make their disposition correct. This is not him conceding that, hey, you have a good point there. You know what? I should have called you first. You should have been the first ones here. You should have drank water correctly out of the creek, and God would have picked your whole tribe to defeat this. See, actually, they're struggling with that petty pride of accomplishing what they want by themselves. But I do want you to notice something about them. They have participated in the battle that they did serve God's purpose, they didn't reject it. And so we're going to see a response that appeases them and allows Gideon to move on. This is what God wanted. It was in line with what God was accomplishing. And even though their attitude is out of line, their activity and their action was in line. And so we see here a soft answer. Now the next group of Israelites he encounters, he also displays godly wisdom but the response is different in dealing with the belligerent, rebellious Gadites. And that's how you have to see the town of Succoth and Penuel. It's in Gad, 
It is on the west side of the Jordan. Remember the two and a half tribes that decided this land was better and God allowed them to stay there. He warned them, don't get disconnected. They've become disconnected. And so they are seeing God's hand at work. This is an Israelite pursuing God's enemies. And their answer to them is basically show us the money. Let's, let's see what you have. They're not committed to God's work. They are refusing to help. And I want you to understand what they've done. They're doing battle with God. They rejected Gideon. Gideon is God's servant. Gideon is doing what God has commanded. And God views these towns as rebellious against him. Now, the action that takes place is quite appropriately severe. One has all their men killed, Penuel, and as I mentioned, possibly because they attempted to stop the breaking down of the tower, their pride and joy, and so they lose all the men of their town. The other had their elders punished with thorns and briars, and I want to remove from your mind a slight whipping. Most likely, they died from this. So in other words, They had pride in their wise leaders, and 77 men died from being whipped and beaten through the briars. And what was the point behind it? To teach the consequences of resisting God and his work. That rebelling against God comes with serious consequences. And I put as a note for us, God does not take lightly rebellion and resistance to his will and work. We live in an age of grace And we are quite abusive of that grace. And we tend to forget that God is not casual about rebellion. He dealt softly with Ephraim, and they have their struggles. Jephthah does not deal softly with Ephraim, and he does not act, I think, in God's will. He just slaughters a whole host of Israelites. But what Gideon did was not him being petty or angry or being vengeful. He is doing what God had told him to do. He says, you're not going to feed me. I'm going to come back and I am going to basically execute your elders with thorns and briars. And he tells Penuel, I'm going to destroy your pride. In other words, you've put your pride in something other than God. You've said God is small. God is limited. I don't see these people in your hands. I don't care that God's working through you. We will do, we will, we will bank on ourselves, on what we have. And God comes and destroys that. Now, I want you to notice something. The Gideon that was easily discouraged is no longer. And I want you to process this. The guy that needs to have a miracle or a sign to prove that God is talking to him, the guy that puts out fleeces because he wants God to change his mind, he's manipulative and trying to change God's mind, the guy that is still in fear and has to go down to the camp and hear a Midianite tell him that he will be successful. That's basically what happens. God uses a pagan to share with him. Now that guy is, is no longer. The godly courage he now has is clearly on display. Because Ephraim, that distraction, their pettiness doesn't waylay him. The Gadite rebellion doesn't knock him off task. By the way, what we don't see is somebody gave the warriors food. Sokoth and Peniel said no. They paid for it. But somebody in that region, they didn't go 150 miles with no food and no sustenance and no, no encouragement. So we do see, we don't, we don't hear it in the story, but we know it by reality that somebody did participate with him. 
And we watch him, even though they say no, it doesn't knock him off task. He doesn't just turn around and say, yeah, it's just not worth it. And I want you to notice something. Gideon persists in completing God's work, or he persists in a complete victory. What would we have said, possibly? 90,000 or 90% are gone. 120,000 soldiers. They're whipped. They're running. They're running back to where they came from. They're gone. We don't have to worry about them anymore. They're not our problem anymore. But that's not what Gideon did. What was the command? To wipe out the hosts. And so he pursues with the 300, tired and ready for a break, overcome eternal obstacles, cross the Jordan, march 150 miles, and then surprise Midian at home and destroy the host. And here's a takeaway that we can understand. The reality is this, the true servant of God who has godly courage, in other words, not self, but godly courage, will finish the work before them. If we're God's servant and we work under God's power, under his courage, then you will finish the work that God has given you to do. Otherwise, you don't have godly courage. Godly courage equals completion. Gideon returns back home and Israel at least the northern tribes want to make him king. However, he flatly turns them down with a reprimand. And I want you to realize something in Gideon's growth. Gideon displays godly wisdom. He rejects the offer that if you read history has been the pursuit of mankind, it seems like for centuries. All you have to read about is the intrigue. One dynasty in China is overthrown by the next dynasty. You read about Egyptian history, and one dynasty rises up, and then another one takes over. Mankind has been striving for that ultimate king leadership position for all of existence. This is what humankind goes for. And somebody goes to Gideon and says, let me hand you kingship. Let me give you rule and let your kid and your grandkid rule over us. We want you to be king. And he turns them down. I put, he showed commitment to God's way, even in the face of great gain. And that's actually a tough hurdle to overcome sometimes, to do what God had ordained and orchestrated. He knew that God ruled over Israel, that he was chosen by God for this moment and for this time, that it wasn't to be a legacy, it wasn't going to be a genetic inheritance that someone else would become king. He recognized in the midst of great gain that he would still follow God's plan, even though he bypasses what would have been possible. And I put the question for us, though, is are we willing or are we living within what God has orchestrated and ordained? Are we seeing the miraculous victories he gives, responding to issues with biblical discernment, and persisting faithfully in his calling and work? Does that describe us? Do we look like Gideon in this moment? Have we understood what God wants, and we follow through even when we have the waylayer, the internal conflict, the, the battle, uh, the, the discouragement that comes from our own? And have we been able to persist in what God wants when we are given, handed, what it seems every human in history has fought to get? And that's dictator-type rule, monarch-type rule over anyone. Does that describe us? Now, I wish Gideon's story ended right there, that this is the, the ending point for his life. But tragically, in the midst of these victories, both physical and spiritual, 
in the midst of, I would say, significant growth in Gideon. And I hope you see the difference between who he was last week as we talked and where he is right now. In that moment, we find him at the end of life, and actually it starts right now, stumbling drastically, and his legacy becomes one that propagates idolatry and failure. And that's the rest of eight. Let me read it. And Gideon said unto them, this is saying, I don't want to be your king. And he says, but I would desire a request of you, that you would give me every man the earrings of his prey, for they had golden earrings because they were Ishmaelites. And they answered, we will willingly give them. And they spread, and imagine if, if most people were wearing earrings and 135,000 people die, that's a lot of earrings. So, uh, and they did cast therein every man the earrings of his prey. And the weight of the golden earrings that he requested was 1,700 shekels of gold. And I think it's somewhere around 42 pounds or something like that. Might be way more than that. Besides ornaments and collars and purple raiment that was on the kings of Midian. And besides the chains that were about their camels' necks. And Gideon made an ephod thereof and put it in his city, even Orphra. And all Israel, note that, went thither a whoring after it. Which thing became a snare unto Gideon and to his house? Thus was Midian subdued before the children of Israel, so that they lifted up their heads no more, and the country was in quietness forty years in the days of Gideon. And Jerubal, the son of Joash, went and dwelt in his own house. We're getting a little history. And Gideon had threescore and ten sons of his body begotten, for he had many wives. And his concubine that was in Shechem, she also bare him a son, whose name he called Abimelech. And Gideon, the son of Joash, died in a good old age and was buried in the sepulcher of Joash's father in Ophrah of the Abizarites. And it came to pass, as soon as Gideon was dead, that the children of Israel turned again and went a-whoring after Balaam and made Balaam Bareth. By the way, that means Lord of the Covenant. So it's a real blend with what they were worshiping before. Baal Bareth, their God. And the children of Israel remember not the Lord their God, who had delivered them out of the hands of all their enemies on every side. Neither showed they kindness to the house of Jerubbabel, namely Gideon, according to all the goodness which he had showed unto Israel. Here's a sad ending. Gideon turned down the kingship, but ended up undermining the priesthood by his idol. <coughs> his intention was likely not to create an idol. It wasn't his goal to destroy worship. The ephod... In his mind and his intent, Scripture kind of hints to that, makes it clear, was to worship God. There's a problem, though. It wasn't what God had commanded, and it's not how you worship God. One commentator noted <coughs> that it was most likely that the priesthood in Shiloh had been corroded, that they were not fulfilling their role to keep Yahweh worship forefront. Gideon's likely intent <coughs> was to promote worship of God, but he went about it his way instead of the clearly prescribed way given by God. And what did he do? He led Israel astray. His failure, this ephod, set up a rapid return to Baal worship that comes to place at his death. They just swapped out one idol for another one. And that's the reason I think it's helpful to understand that Baal beareth, Baal meaning Lord for them, their God of the covenant. God is called Elbereth, which is God of the covenant. They have just swapped. And he had put the ephod there for those years and set them up. And I put here, Gideon at the end of life, arrogantly polluted worship. 
Eugene Merrill notes this, the ephod became in itself an object of worship that undermined much of what Gideon had achieved on behalf of Yahweh. Gideon turned down the throne, but stole the priesthood. His ephod would have distracted worship away from Shiloh, where it belonged, and thus moved away from what God had commanded, no matter how good his intentions were. And I keep saying that because I want that to be beaten to your skull. I don't care, and neither does God, about how good your intentions are. When you break his law, it doesn't end in anything that's positive. That should give us a pause, right? And I, I, this one really hit home. Is there anything that we, and I put myself, is there anything that I'm doing or considering doing that ultimately undermines what work we have done for the Lord that, though well-intentioned, goes against what He has commanded? Through the years, I've heard over and over people's intentions, ideas, thoughts, direction. And the intentions sound good. I remember a friend of mine, he was sharing, uh, so this, is, this puts me a, a, a couple of degrees of separation, and it's nobody in Culpeper, so it helps. He was sharing about somebody he goes to church with that just disappeared from church, and he, he was telling me the story. He says, I, I bumped into him, and I said, where have you been? They said, ah, we decided not to worship at church anymore. We just go outside and pray in the nature, and, and that's how we're going to connect with God. That's all fine and dandy if you're a pagan, if you believe in new spirituality, if you're building your own cult, but that's not what God says to do. I know that becomes popular, but it's unbiblical, and God doesn't honor that at all. But then I have to look at myself, and what do I do? How have I replaced? What have I done to remove what God has commanded? Because I think in my good intentions, in my uh, and this is Gideon and his wisdom, right? I can bring worship to Yahweh close. I can, be, I can have my hands on it. I can, help, I can help Israel get faithful to stop worshiping Baal and to worship the one true God. I can do. And you see what he keeps saying? I can do, but he does it in opposition to what God wants. I'm sure the excuse, they're not doing a good job in Shiloh. These people are just flopping. They're, 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 they're ruining it. What could he have done? I should have tracked as his example to worship at Shiloh. He should have been where the tabernacle was. He should have helped and brought conviction to the Levites to perform their task. Instead, he decided to take the priesthood, turn down the kingship, but stole the priesthood. Now, on top of that, he dangerously multiplied wives. It says, for he had many wives. And then we hear about a son that's from a concubine. And just to understand when you see that word in scripture, that is a second level wife. So it is someone who he's married, uh, but typically when you married somebody, you would take them into your home. They would become your responsibility. Maybe their dowry was high enough because it's all about a financial transaction. To some extent, you're going to take care of her. Well, this second tier wife, especially in Gideon's time, she remained in her father's house. This wife has a son named Abimelech, which means the father is king. Now, some people think it means the father will be king or will be a, a son of a king. But the idea is he named, and really she named, Abimelech, the father is king. And what we see in this name is a disposition that has permeated Gideon's family. At least has permeated people in Shechem as they see Gideon and they see this son as an opportunity. Because this son would have grown up in Shechem because she's still in her father's home. And they are, even though rejecting the throne, have lived with the king's disposition. 
The son of a secondary wife ends up being the cause of much loss to Gideon's family in the end. By the way, his many wives are what the kings would always do. You have many wives, so you have many sons, so you have a better chance of having a legacy. All stripped away, just read the next chapter, Abimelech murders 69 of the sons. One survives to bring conviction to Abimelech. Abimelech dies with a stone on his head, and we'll talk about this next week. All of Gideon's supposed progeny, all of his pride is annihilated. And at the end, we see that Israel foolishly forgets God and also Gideon. There is a lack of gratitude in Israel. They forgot God and his work on their behalf, and they also forget the man God used. Upon Gideon's death, they revert to paganism. But as I mentioned, it wasn't a hard switch. They had an ephod that they were worshiping and became an idol. And as, as it says there that the hall of Israel polluted worship went to. And now all they did was switch to this Baal that they've added Bereth to, which means covenant. So we have blended worship. And we'll see a little bit more of that with Shechem because Shechem is actually a very special place. Abram has a lot of dedications there. Joshua has a lot of dedications there. A lot of things happened, but what had built up in there as it moved to Shiloh was they they had a resistance to be an anti-Yahweh worship, but it's polluted and tied in to the God of the covenant. The lesson here should be sobering to us all. It's way too easy to have our arrogance grow, which then clouds our biblical discernment and results in actions that contradict God's command, even while we say we are serving him. And don't miss that. Gideon never once in his life was saying, I'm not serving God. It's just that the actions he took and his arrogance ultimately undermined the work that he did and had done for God. Notice this, Gideon fails when his, when his initiatives take center stage. When Gideon's idea, Gideon's way takes center stage, you see failure, but he succeeds beyond belief when relying upon God and the godly courage that uniquely comes from God. So how do we bring that lesson to the, what, the street level of our life? How do we walk outside of this building and, and apply that? Well, it starts and ends with a look at where our courage and command comes from. Whose courage do you have? And whose command do you follow? Word it another way, upon whom do you rely? Is it on the Lord or is it on yourself? See, Gideon closed life living it his way, but he'd made it in life by following God's way. And so I put it in a question format and then we'll pray. Does God define what victory is for your life? Or have you stolen that responsibility for yourself? Because that's what Gideon did. I will define my ultimate victory. I will, I will do this. Does God define what victory is for your life? Or have you stolen that responsibility for yourself? Mm-hmm. 